Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm an infrequent visitor to London, but I can uh, assure you that you didn't have to put on this weather for me. I, uh, I, uh, but I got in yesterday and had a lovely day grading essays, as uh, those of us who are in the business have to do this time of year. Grading essays in, sitting in uh, Lincoln's Inn Fields, which was just uh, a much better place to grade essays than in Vermont. Uh, so, thanks very much for coming. Uh, the New Middle East Cold War is uh, my title, and as, as Stefan alluded to, I, I picked that, uh, that title very specifically because I think that what we're seeing in the international politics of the Middle East region right now has numerous structural similarities to the politics of the region in the 1950s and 1960s. The 1950s and 1960s, which was characterized, right, which characterized by, by the late Malcolm Kerr as the Arab Cold War. So why new? Well, lots of you I can see from uh, the audience probably remember who this guy was. Right? Uh, those of you who are younger than I, uh, that was good. that's Gamal Abdel Nasser, right, who was uh, the president of Egypt, just in case you didn't know. Uh, back in the 50s and 60s, and was the seminal figure in, in what Malcolm Kerr referred to as the Arab Cold War. Uh, the other Ur text of that period was written by uh, Patrick Seal, The Struggle for Syria, another title that is frequently referenced in, in the writings about what's going on in Syria right now. Of course, Patrick uh, died just last month, uh, one of the certainly most interesting and influential uh, contributors to our understanding of the politics of Syria and of the Middle East more generally, somebody who uh, will be greatly missed by those who knew him. And, and if we have time at the end, as, as a little bit of a memorial, I'll tell my favorite Patrick Seal story, uh, but only if we have time at the end. So why new? Because we've seen the patterns that I'm going to discuss as, as uh, the framework for understanding politics, the international politics in the region these days, we saw, we've seen those patterns before. And we saw them in the 50s and 60s during the time of the Arab Cold War, right? So what are those similarities, right? Well, it's a Cold War, which means that we don't expect to see battlefield confrontations between the armies of the major protagonists. And the major protagonists in this new Middle East Cold War, of course, are Iran, Saudi Arabia, to a lesser extent, Turkey, and some other players playing into the game. Right? We don't expect them, we don't expect to see the Saudi army and the Iranian army facing off. I doubt very strongly that we will see right, a single instance of a Saudi military person firing a, a, a weapon at an Iranian military person. Right? Much as during the classic Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, although there was enormous violence as part of that Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States never exchanged hostile fire against each other during that time. During the Arab Cold War, Gamal bin Nasser's brief and few efforts to actually use Egyptian military power to extend his influence ended up disastrously. Whether it was the Yemen Civil War or 
his uh, provoking of the crisis in May 1967, which led to the defeat of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan in the, in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War. What's going on now in the Middle East is similar to what was going on in the 50s and 60s in, in that it's not a direct military confrontation between the main protagonists. Rather, it's a contest for influence that's played out in the domestic political systems of weak Arab states. And by weak Arab states, I don't mean weak in the classic international politics sense. Right? I mean weak in terms of the state's ability to control direct and, 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 and surveil society. Right? Think about a country like Kuwait, which is a classically weak state in the international politics sense. can't defend itself against its larger neighbors militarily, as we saw in 1990. But Kuwait is actually a strong state in terms of state-society relations. The Kuwaiti government controls its borders, right? polices its state, enforces its law, Kuwaitis have many varied political identities, but their loyalty to the state in, in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases trumps those other identities. And the Kuwaiti state is able to provide the basic, not, not just the basic requisites of, of statehood, protection, order, to its society. It's able to provide services far beyond those basic requisites of statehood to its citizens. And thus, I would argue Kuwait, from the point of view of state-society relations, is a pretty strong state. Iraq, on the other hand, these days, is a pretty weak state. Right? The extent of the ability of the Iraqi government to control its borders right, is limited. The ability of the Iraqi state to confront armed groups within its borders is questionable. The ability of the Iraqi state to enforce its writ throughout its borders is negligible in some parts of the country, including the north. Iraq is a weak state in terms of state-society relations. The Arab Cold War of the 50s and 60s and the new Middle East Cold War today is being played out in the domestic politics of these weak states. In these weak states, there are contests for influence among the domestic political actors, and those domestic political actors invite in outside powers to support them, because those domestic political actors need what the outside actors can provide, money, guns, political legitimation, diplomatic support. Much as Abu Nasser and the Saudis contested for influence in Syria and in Yemen, and in Iraq, and in Lebanon, in the 1950s and 1960s. The Saudis, the Iranians, the Turks, the Qataris, the Israelis in some cases, are contesting for influence by backing proxies and allies in the conflictual domestic politics of weak Arab states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, to a lesser extent, Yemen, Palestine, as a weak proto-state. And very similar to the Arab Cold War of the 1950s and 60s, there's more than one conflict axis in the new Middle East Cold War. In the 50s and 60s, there was the 
main axis of the Arab nationalists versus the pro-Western and Western-aligned, largely monarchical states. But there was also the conflict axis within the quote-unquote progressive camp in the 50s and 60s, where Abdel Nasser was confronted by Abdel Karim Qasim after the Iraqi Revolution in 1958, and where the Ba'ath Party in Syria was, uh, at best, an unruly ally of Nasser, and at times the opponent of Nasser. Similarly today, we see a main conflict axis between Iran and Saudi Arabia in the new Middle Eastern Cold War. But we also see uh, uh, an axis of conflict within the Sunni community, between Saudi Arabia and its allies in the United Arab Emirates and other Gulf states, and the Muslim Brotherhood and the Brothers external allies like Qatar and to a lesser extent Turkey. So I think these structural similarities are striking. And thus I think that that the best way to understand the politics of regional international relations in the Middle East these days is by seeing them as a new Middle East Cold War. Now one of the reasons why I started thinking about this is that I was dissatisfied with the framework which is usually used, both in the media and in some of the scholarly literature, to describe what's happening today, which is, of course, that this is a big Sunni-Shia conflict. The sectarian frame is, I would say, the most popular and, and widely used frame to analyze the politics of the region. And I think it's incomplete. This is not to say sectarianism is irrelevant. Of course it isn't. Of course it isn't. But I think viewing the regional politics of the Middle East through an exclusively sectarian frame distorts as much as it explains. First off, it oversimplifies. In many of these weaker Arab states... The splits are not necessarily simply sectarian. In both Syria and Iraq, the Kurds play a major role. And that's an ethnic identity in which the Sunni-Shia distinction among Kurds doesn't seem to be particularly politically relevant. With Kurdish ethnic, linguistic, if you will, identity trumping the sectarian issue. Of course, Lebanese Christians play into this in in various ways, as we're seeing with the Lebanese elections now, the the presidential election. And it also, I think, the sectarian framework distorts just exactly who the Alawis are. This alliance between the Islamic uh, Islamic Revolutionary Government of Iran and the Assad regime in Syria had little, if anything, to do with sectarianism. It was a balance of power alliance between two states which had common enemies, Israel and Saddam Hussein. That alliance developed over time into a mutually beneficial and extremely important element of both countries' foreign policies. I don't think it had anything to do with, with, with the particular sectarian affiliation of the Alawites. 
In fact, I would assume, from my own readings on the subject, that if you lined up 100 Ayatollahs, you could find 100 Ayatollahs, and you line them up, and you ask them, are the Alawis Shia? 92 of them would say no. And thus what was, at base, a balance of power alliance between two state governments is now depicted as a sectarian alliance. And so I think that this is a distorted view of things. This oversimplification of the politics of, of the new Middle East Cold War also lends itself to the notion that there is that these are primordial, right? That a Sunni-Shia conflict is an enduring, uh, unchanging element of the politics of the region, which I think is just plain wrong. The past cleavages right, that animated the politics of the region were not sectarian. Right? The Arab Cold War of the 1950s was ideological. The Lebanese Civil War was sectarian, but not Sunni Shia, Christian Muslim. It's the particularities of politics in this current situation right, that have driven sectarian feelings and sectarian identities to the top of many of these struggles. But I want to talk about the particularities of the, uh, of the politics that created that and, and emphasize that this is not something primordial. I also think it's, it, it's interesting to note that the two main protagonists in this new Middle East Cold War, both Saudi Arabia and Iran, both deny that they are pursuing sectarian policies. Right? They both deny that. In fact, they blame the other one. Right for sectarianism. Now, uh, much of this is is you know classic hypocrisy, right? Is defined as the homage that vice pays to virtue, right? Because both Saudi Arabia and Iran use sectarianism in their foreign policy strategies to consolidate alliances and to try to undermine the other. But it's interesting to note that both of them. Right? Think virtue lies on the side of those who deny that sectarianism drives their policies. And of course, there are efforts by both of them to step over the sectarian line. Iran, most obviously, by, by its self-proclaimed status as, as leader of the axis of resistance, its close alliance, uh, although fraying somewhat uh, under sectarian strains these days, with Hamas. The Saudis, a little less directly, have in fact sought out allies that are not Sunni sectarians. Iyad Alawi, right, the head of the Iraqiya bloc in the 2009 Iraqi elections, is a close ally of Saudi Arabia. Right? Alawi is a completely secular man, obviously, but, uh, but a Shia. There were, there were Sunni sectarian parties that the Saudis could have backed in the Iraqi elections of 2009, but they didn't. So in both cases, the Saudis and the Iranians, when they can or when the opportunity provides itself, step over the sectarian one. And finally, it, it's as, as uh, anyone who follows the politics of the region knows, and I'll talk more about this later, uh, intra-Sunni tensions and intra-Sunni state rivalries right, and ideological 
differences. Expressed most directly in the, in the campaign against the Muslim Brotherhood conducted by this, this new Egyptian-Saudi-Emirati uh, alliance. Here's the lie to the fact that all the Sunnis are on one side and all the Shia are on the other. And so I think that this popular sectarian framework for understanding the politics of the region actually doesn't work. And it obscures as much as it enlightens. Uh, this is an educated audience. I, I, I leave this slide in just because sometimes in America you have to tell people who the Sunnis are and who, who the Shia are, but uh, I don't have to do that in front of, a, a, of an LSE audience. Right? Now, I think one of the interesting indicators of the fact that this is a Cold War, right? not a classic state versus state military conflict, are some of the paradoxes we see in the way power is exercised in this Cold War. So let's ask ourselves, between Israel and Qatar, who is playing the bigger role in the new Middle East Cold War? Israel is the most powerful military actor in the Middle East. I don't think anybody would deny that. Qatar is this tiny little thumb of a country sticking up from the Arabian Peninsula that, uh, whose military power is minuscule, if at all measurable. <laughs> Who is playing a bigger role in the new Middle East Cold War? Qatar is. Not Israel. Because the game in the new Middle East Cold War right, is the ability of the patron to find clients and allies in the riven domestic politics of these weak Arab states and supply those clients and allies with the things that will help those clients and allies in their own struggles for power domestically. Money, guns, information strategies. The Israelis don't have those. They have plenty of guns, right? But they don't have those political ties with players in these weak Arab states. The Israelis tried to play this game in Lebanon back in the 80s, as we know, in the 70s and 80s. Right? They tried to manipulate Lebanese domestic politics, right? both indirectly and then finally directly in the invasion of 1982. Uh, and it was a colossal failure for them. So to some extent, the Israelis have decided to sit this one out. But to some extent, they have to sit this one out because they don't have those political links that the Qataris do to players in this game, in the domestic politics of these weak Arab states. Why are the Iranians playing this game so well? Is it because of their military power? I doubt it. I don't think too many people in the Arab world really think that the Iranian army is going to cross international borders and take over their country. It's not Iranian conventional or even prospectively unconventional military power that gives Iran a leading role in the new Middle East Cold War. Rather, it's this guy. Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force. The Iranians have been able to build very, very strong relations with a number of actors 
in these weak Arab states, be it Lebanon with Hezbollah, Syria with uh, their ties to the regime, Iraq with their ties to various political groups, mostly Shia, but not exclusively Shia, in Iraqi politics. It's not Iranian military power. It's Iranian political ties. Their ability to provide the arms, the money, the diplomatic support. At times, men on the ground. Not their regular army, but their clients like Hezbollah and their irregular forces like the Quds Force. Finally, I think that the, the, the contrast between Turkish soft power and Saudi money points out some of the interesting elements of this new Middle East Cold War. Right? If we had gotten together in 2010, right, before the Arab uprisings began, and I polled you, right, you Middle East experts here at the LSE, uh, and asked you, who's the rising power in the, in the Middle East today? Who's, got, who's on the ascent? Right? Who looks to be able to play a much greater role down the line? in the near future in the Middle East. I would assume that many, many, many of you, probably a majority, I would say, would say Turkey. They would say Turkey. They would say, look at the soft power, right? The Turkish soap operas, right? The, 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 the popularity of Turkey as, a, as, as a, a, a vacation place. The role of Turkish business, the growing role of Turkish business in, in many Arab states, right? Look at, the, look at the successful model that the AKP can present, right, of, of, of a popularly elected, stable, Islamist government that's presided over remarkable economic growth, right? Turkey was the soft power hero, I think, of the pre-Arab Spring Middle East. And even with the Arab Spring, Turkey exercised some of that soft power. You might recall Prime Minister Erdogan's victory tour in the fall of 2011 to Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt. Saying all along, uh, Turkey can't be an exact model for the development of your new governments, but his very presence in those countries asserting that Turkey could be a model for the development of the new governments in those places. And then the Syrian civil war started. And the Turks, riding high, attempted to play a direct role in removing Bashar al-Assad from power. And what they found is that in a civil war, soft power isn't very useful. It's the money and the guns that you can provide to your allies. And the Turks have been more reluctant, I would say, to get their hands dirty in the business of actually providing the requisites necessary to your clients to win a civil war that has reduced the perceptions of their power in the region. So where does this new Middle East Cold War come from? I think there's a a perception out there, uh, held by many, that this is a top-down phenomenon. This is Saudi Arabia and Iran struggling for regional domination, struggling for regional hegemony, imposing themselves into the politics of other places. And I think that's wrong. I think the better way to understand what's going on in the new Middle East Cold War is that it's a bottom-up phenomenon, not a top-down phenomenon. 
And what do I mean by a bottom-up phenomenon? It's the weakness or breakdown of state authority that invites regional intervention. It's the weakness of states that creates the possibility of regional powers trying to fill those political vacuums. And you get regional cold wars when you have numerous of these political vacuums. Historically, there have always been weak states in the Arab world, Lebanon and Yemen for their own reasons. Historically, weak states in which outsiders have played very active roles, in which the domestic actors in those countries have invited outsiders to play important roles in their politics. But I think that the, 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 real new, middle, the new Middle East Cold War really begins in 2003, when the United States invades Iraq and destroys what's left of the Iraqi state, right? destroys it as a matter of policy. This opens up Iraq, which had been a player, an important player, in regional politics in the Middle East in the 70s and 80s, and even to some extent into the 90s, although greatly weakened by Saddam Hussein's adventure in invading Kuwait. But with 2003, Iraq ceases to be a player in regional politics and becomes a playing field. And with the opening up of a major regional power, a centrally located geographically regional power like Iraq, the new Middle East Cold War becomes engaged. <clears throat> and the direction of Iraqi domestic politics becomes a matter of intense regional involvement. The 2007 Fatah-Hamas split opens up Palestine as an arena, the proto-state of Palestine, if you will, in the West Bank and Gaza, as another playing field in this new Middle East Cold War. The Arab Spring adds to the number of these potential political vacuums into which regional powers can play, into which regional powers are invited by the contesting domestic parties in these political systems. Syria and Libya, state weakness. Right? The collapse of the state in Libya. Right? The great weakening of the state in Syria as a result of the civil war. And of course, in, in Egypt, with tensions between the once and, uh, the once and future presidents down there in the lower right-hand corner. <laughs> Stefan, you're not blocking the, the once and future presidents. People can see them, I hope. <laughs> so I see the new Middle East Cold War as a bottom-up phenomenon. When the state is weak and, weak, weak and or broken, right? political vacuums are created into which the regional players Play. And thus, to me, sectarianism is a bottom-up phenomenon, not a top-down phenomenon. The Saudis and the Iranians did not create the sectarian tensions in Iraq, or in Syria, or in Lebanon. They take advantage of them, but they did not create them. I just want to point out that, that this weakening of the Arab state is a, it reverses a decades-long project, a decades-long process of state strengthening that we saw in the Arab world from the 1970s to the 2000s. 
Again, some states stood outside this process, Lebanon, Yemen. But what we saw, I think, in the 70s and the 80s, much in reaction to the Arab Cold War of the 50s and 60s, was the building of strong and fierce state entities in most of the Arab world. Now, this process was not pretty. State building never is. State building is never a pretty process. It's a violent process. It's usually done by horrible human beings. Henry VIII and Cardinal Richelieu were not nice men, but they built states. It's accompanied by the loss of political freedoms, by the stultifying hand of the state controlling the economy, by secret police, the development of secret police apparatus, all of these things that we saw in the Arab world in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, you know, were, were part of this state-building process. But in most cases, it seemed to work. Right? Syria, which had been the plaything of regional powers, a weak and divided state in the 50s and even into the 60s, became a strong, fierce state under Hafez al-Assad. The oil states build up state capacity dramatically after the, the rise in oil prices. What we've seen is, is in many of the cases in the Arab world, a reversal of this, pro- of this decades-long project. And thus, what do we see is the rise of importance of non-state actors, be it Asab al-Abdhaq, right? Here with uh, burying some of their dead from the fighting in Syria, an Iraqi organization, right? non-state actor, like crossing borders to fight in a domestic civil war in Syria, or the emergence of the importance of a, of, of a transnational Sunni radical jihadist movement like Al-Qaeda. This, this particular picture from the Daesh, from the, from the, uh, the Islamic State of, of Iraq and Hashem uh, fighters. During the 70s to the 2000s, when most of the Arab states were strengthening the role of the state over society, these guys wouldn't have been the actors that they have become. But with the weakening of the Arab state, these non-state actors can play a much greater role than they did in the past. Right? So what do we see in, in, the, in the new Middle East Cold War? We see a playing field here, a playing field here, a playing field here, a playing field here, a lesser playing field here, perhaps a playing field here in intra-Sunni conflicts. We'll see what happens in, in, in Libya. Right? People talk, following King Abdullah II of, of Jordan's quote back in the mid-2000s, people say, people see a Shia crescent. I see a, a crescent of state weakness. I see a crescent of state weakness from Palestine through Lebanon, Syria, into Iraq that is the most important element in understanding the new Middle East Cold War. So Iran, of course, is well-positioned to take advantage of state weakness in Lebanon, in, in, in Iraq, perhaps even in some of the Gulf states in Yemen, because the Shia connections 
because of its, its uh, it being the, the last major regional state right, to take a, a rejectionist stance toward Israel. And because of its strong state-to-state -state alliance with Syria. Right? Iranians have cultivated these alliances both at the state level and at the sub-state level for some time. <coughs> Nouri al-Maliki is still Prime Minister of Iraq because the Iranians brokered the deal that kept him in power in 2010. Uh, we don't have to even talk about Hezbollah's close, close relationship with the Iranians. And while ties between Hamas and Iran are uh, weaker than they were, uh, they haven't disappeared. The Iranians did very well in the pre-Arab Spring parts of the, uh, of the new Middle East Cold War. They became the dominant outside force in Iraqi politics, even while the United States had 100,000 troops there. Right? <laughs> Shows how successful American political military strategy in Iraq was. Hezbollah, the dominant force in, in, in Lebanese politics. The Saudis supported March 14th, and March 14th won two elections. And still, Hezbollah is the dominant force in Lebanese politics. The Saudis backed Iyad Alawi, who quote-unquote won the 2010 election in Iraq, and Nouri al-Maliki remains as prime minister. You can understand why the Saudis are a little reluctant about democracy. It doesn't seem to work for them. Uh, that's a joke. That's a, that's a joke. That's a joke. Right? Uh, but the Saudis were on a losing streak. Right? The Saudis were on a losing streak in the new Middle East Cold War. They had lost in Lebanon. They had lost in Palestine after King Abdullah very publicly brings Fatah and Hamas together in the Mecca Accord of early 2007, within months, Fatah and Hamas have fallen out or fighting and, 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 and Hamas takes over Gaza and, and, and Fatah controls the West Bank. Right? In Iraq, the Saudis lost badly to the Iranians in the, in the contest for influence, which is why Syria is so important in Saudi foreign policy now. For the Saudis, Syria is their best chance to roll back Iranian influence in the region. Sunni majority country. It's the best chance to roll back Iranian influence in the region, which is why the Saudis have gone, uh, if not all in, at least mostly in, in trying to remove the Assad regime from power. But as I said, right, in any Cold War, there's going to be more than one conflict axis. And in the last six months, it's the intra-Sunni conflict axis that has emerged as perhaps an equally important element in the struggle for regional political influence in, the, in this new Middle East Cold War. Of course, Muslim Brotherhood electoral victories in Tunisia and Egypt seem to indicate that there was a trend in the post-Arab Spring, Arab world, 
toward electoral Islamist victors. The MB had direct support from Qatar with its extremely ambitious policy of trying to punch above its weight in regional politics, and indirectly had support from the AKP as model and as guide to a lesser extent. This democratic Islamism is a serious challenge to Saudi Arabia, which has always claimed, which, which for decades claimed the right to define what Islam meant for politics, which after the Iranian Revolution claimed the right to define what Sunni Islam means for politics, but now with the emergence of electoral victories by Arab Islamists, even that claim could be called into question. What were the Saudi and Emirati responses to this? Well, of course, the Saudis supported, in an ironic twist, the most secular elements of the Syrian opposition at the outset. And more recently, uh, in the last year or so, well, from, from about the, the beginning of 20, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, then began to shift, not so much shift support, they still gave money to the, to the FSA and the Syrian uh, rebels uh, being trained out of Jordan and, and, and run out of Jordan uh, in conjunction with the U.S. But you know, when Bandar kind of took over Saudi-Syrian policy in 2012, he started to try to, to thread this very difficult needle of, of finding Salafi groups to support that weren't well, Al-Qaeda. But we have the irony of the Saudis supporting right, the Free Syrian Army against kind of Muslim Brotherhood-oriented Islamist opposition that was supported by Turkey and Qatar. Right? Of course, the support for the coup in Egypt is the most obvious Saudi and Emirati uh, effort to roll back Muslim Brotherhood influence in the region. And finally, of course, the most recent pressure on Qatar and on regional Muslim Brotherhood groups, the pressure on Qatar with the withdrawal of ambassadors, the declaration of the MB as a terrorist organization in Saudi Arabia. I think most un-Saudi, right, the Saudis don't, don't usually you know, put things out there that baldly. They usually try to leave themselves an escape hatch, but to declare the Muslim Brotherhood and not a specific Muslim Brotherhood group, but the Muslim Brotherhood, a terrorist organization, was an extremely, uh, I think, uh, <coughs> telling shift in, in the policy of Saudi Arabia. So if this is a Sunni-Shia fight, the Sunnis do not have their act together. The Muslim Brotherhood, if this were a purely sectarian fight, the Muslim Brotherhood should have been an important ally of Saudi Arabia confronting Iranian influence in the region. Some people say that the Morsi government in Egypt was uh, not a reliable ally for Saudi Arabia. I don't, I don't know what they did that made them not a reliable ally. Sure, Mohammed Morsi went to Iran and he lectured the Iranians on how bad their Syrian policy was. Then he came back to Cairo and in effect uh, endorsed the jihad against the, uh, the Assad regime. He would seem, at least on the Syrian front, to be a great ally for the Saudis. But the Saudis enthusiastically backed and financed the military coup against him. Turkey would seem to be a perfect ally for Saudi Arabia. Right? 
both of the both the Turkish and Saudi regimes want Bashar al-Assad out of power. But there seems to be precious little co- coordination between Ankara and Riyadh in dealing with the Syrian issue. <clears throat> I think this intra-Sunni axis is going to only grow in importance in terms of the political future of places like Libya, which much like Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, is now a wide open arena for regional powers to try to advance their own interests by supporting clients and allies within Libyan politics. So usually I'm giving this talk in, in, the, in, in the United States, and of course the only thing people there care about is, so what's in it for us? Uh, so uh, I'll say a few words about American policy here in, in lieu of a conclusion. Uh, if the core political process driving the new Middle East Cold War is state weakness, right? if the intensity of the new Middle East Cold War is defined by the number of political arenas, political vacuums in which the regional powers are drawn, to fight out their their contest for influence. If the core reason behind this new Middle East Cold War is state weakness, then America has very, very little that it can do to help alleviate. As the United States demonstrated in Iraq, we are, we, my country, I'm an American. In case you didn't know, I'm an American. my country is a lot better at state destroying than at state building. Uh, we're really good. Actually, we're really good at state destroying. Uh, but at state building, not so good. And, and if you agree with me right, that the real end of the old Arab Cold War of the 50s and 60s was not Nasser's defeat by the Israelis in 1967, as important as that was, but rather the building of strong Arab states and thus the reduction of the number of arenas in which regional powers could play out their contests for influence right, through the intervention in the, domestic, in, in the domestic politics of others. If you agree with me on that, then you would have to say that the end of this new Middle East Cold War eventually can only come with the rebuilding of state authority in Iraq and in Syria particularly. And I don't think the United States has much to contribute on that front. So you will hear uh, uh, criticism of American policy uh, from various uh, circles and from various directions uh, about how inconsistent it is. This is absolutely right. right. If your framework for understanding the regional politics of the Middle East is the new Middle East Cold War, American policy is colossally inconsistent. The United States is backing an Iranian-supported government in Iraq that is fighting against a largely Sunni Muslim insurgency that has al-Qaeda tendencies within it. In Syria, the United States, at least in declaratory policy, is supporting a Sunni Muslim insurgency 
that has important al-Qaeda elements in it against an Iranian-supported government. The United States says it's in favor of democracy in the Arab world, but refuses to call what happened in Egypt in July of 2013 a coup. For very precise legal reasons that if the President of the United States, if the United States government certifies that, that an allied country army has conducted a military coup, American law requires that military assistance to that army be immediately cut off. The United States is negotiating with Iran on a nuclear deal, what it hopes will be a nuclear deal that walks the Iranian nuclear capacity back, at the same time that it is trying to limit Iranian regional political influence. And I can uh, go on and on with these inconsistencies. But I have to tell you, from the point of view of the people who make the policy in Washington, these are not inconsistencies at all. Because Washington doesn't view the Middle East through this prism. It doesn't view the Middle East through, through this prism. It views the Middle East through a couple of core interests. Right? Number one, of course, is, is the relationship with Israel. But that particular relationship with Israel isn't kind of driving the Arab Spring responses because the Israelis are at sixes and sevens about what to do about the Arab Spring themselves and what it means for them. Right? The Obama administration has a few goals in the Middle East. One is the nuclear deal with Iran. They see no inconsistency whatsoever between negotiating a nuclear deal with Iran and trying to limit Iranian regional influence. In fact, I think that if if we had members of the administration here and they could speak openly to us, they would say, this is not only not inconsistent, it's perfectly consistent. You know, we're playing the long game, which is a phrase that the Obama administration likes. Right? If we do a nuclear deal with Rouhani and it can stick, then Rouhani and his folks, their power within the Iranian political system will increase. And over time, they will be able to get more influence on other aspects of Iranian foreign policy and push back the Quds Force guys, push back the... the uh, the elements of the Iranian elite who, uh, who who seek to exploit regional domestic weaknesses to advance Iranian interests and, and return to a more state-to-state policy. Now, that might not happen, but I think that that's what the administration says its long game is. Right? It opposes Salafi jihadism, right? and thus uh, it, it, it will, it, it's very leery. This administration about getting involved, right? in the Syrian conflict where it sees a growing role for jihadist groups in the opposition to the Assad regime. And fundamentally, it just doesn't see Syria as being as important to American interests as the Saudis see Syria being important to their interests. (coughs) For the Saudis, the American deal, nuclear deal with Iran, ignores what is the more immediate threat to Saudi security, which is Iranian regional influence. The Obama administration sees the more immediate threat emanating from Iran as the nuclear program. They're not going to allow the the issue of Iranian regional influence to stand in the way of what they think is the possibility of a good nuclear deal with Iran. Here, they differ from the Saudis. 
It's interesting. The, 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 the difference between the Saudis and the Americans on Syria is not one of ends. It's one of priorities. Right? The United States' declaratory policy is we want Bashar al-Assad out. We're just not willing to do much to bring that about. Because, frankly, Washington just doesn't see Syria as being all that important for its core interests. I didn't put it up here on, on the slide, but I also think that, that the more profound difference between the Saudis and the Americans these days is on the theoretical issue of democracy in the Arab world. The United States isn't going to do much to actually promote democracy in the Arab world. But we have a declaratory policy of favoring it. And thus, every once in a while, we slap the Egyptian government on the wrist. Right? Just recently, uh, the Congress, in its wisdom, or at least the chair of the uh, of the Foreign Appropriations Subcommittee of the, of the Senate Appropriations Committee, who is my senator, Patrick Leahy, from Vermont, uh, has said that no, uh, no more military aid to Egypt if they keep misbehaving by, you know, uh, having a huge death, huge numbers of death sentences handed out, uh, which makes the headlines in English language newspapers. Uh, Whereas the Saudis uh, obviously have very different views, both in their terms of their declaratory policy and what they actually do in terms of democracy in the Arab world. And thus, I, I, I see that the, the U.S.-Saudi, and this, I'll end on this note, and you've been more than patient in allowing me to overstep my time with you. Uh, at least no one's thrown anything at me. Stefan, you haven't thrown anything at me yet. But I We're going to lose shoe here. Yeah, only one shoe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The real problem in Saudi-American uh, relations is not the crisis that, that people are talking about now. The Saudis and the Americans have overcome you know, more serious differences in the past. And, and frankly, geopolitical issues will continue, I think, to push them together. The more serious long-term challenge is this, this question of, of, of priorities. You know, how important... You know, the fact that, that Syria is so vastly different in the priority list of the two countries is an indication that perhaps down the line, the Saudis and the Americans will have not so much different goals in the region, but their priorities will be different enough that their policies will diverge, perhaps more often in the future than they have in the past. Thank you.